five, four, three, three two, two, one. Thunderbirds are go. go. Bum ba ba da And welcome to another long-awaited episode of Revolutionary <laughs> Dispatches. I'm Catherine Wright. And I'm David Bryan. It's been both too long and not that long. Yeah. <laughs> In so, a funny old way. Yeah. So, um, we hadn't recorded since about 2019. For a long time. Yeah. Um, and then I had essentially failed to ever get around to editing that episode because... I was in the middle of a massive mental crisis, mm-hmm. and that didn't go so well. Our last actual episode was out in sort of 2018 2018, time. yeah. Back when Brexit was the most important thing in the world. Yeah, back, well, back then that was the only topic of conversation in <laughs> political space. So our last, our last <clears throat> episode was the 8th of June, 20... I say we did record more recently than that. And then we recorded again more recently still, actually, just Very over recently. a week ago. Yeah. But um, due to some technical difficulties, for which you may read, I forgot to mm. make sure that Audacity was recording via my actual podcast microphone. <laughs> and instead, I recorded the entire three-hour recording session um, using my webcam microphone that was not only bad and at quite some distance from my face, but was also pointing away from me because I turn my webcam around when I'm not actively using it. Um, yeah. So, yep. I apolo- my apologies mostly to David for <laughs> wasting three hours of That's his okay. time. Uh, but also to all of you for depriving of you of Revolutionary Dispatches content for another week. Yeah. Um, you must have been... You must People were fine with it for the previous devastated. two years, but that extra week, that's, that's it what really pushed was, it over the yeah. line. Yeah, they're all going to hate us now. Mm. Um, so, our ambition for this episode is to try and cover all of the key points that we made last week, plus some new ones on things that have happened since, and then to some talk things, about some things that have happened since. Yeah. Yes, we'll get to that, and then to talk about the uh, upcoming U.S. general election, which is due on November the third. Um, we're recording this. On Halloween. We are fact. spooky. Uh, by the time you hear it, it will probably be the 2nd of November. I imagine it will take me a couple of hours. If you're hearing this uh, not on Monday, then I was wrong. Mm. Um, either either I got it done more quickly than I thought, or it took me longer. But, um, so either yeah. we're pleased that it's gone well, or you can just enjoy the irony. Of <laughs> yeah. I suppose as long as it's, out, as long as it's out by Tuesday, yeah. that'll be okay. Because that's still before the results will be in. Well, I mean... As well, probably. Well, who knows? We'll come to that. Yeah. 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 But, um, yeah. So, oh, and also the other piece of housekeeping, which I did go over last week, but then was lost into the ether Mm. of my terrible webcam mic, is that 
I am still the same person oh, yeah. uh, that I was. Uh, David hasn't taken over the show and replaced replaced his co-host with with some kind of yeah. robot imposter. Um, I haven't suspended you from the podcast on no. dubious grounds. <laughs> <laughs> we said we'd get that. <laughs> yeah, so uh, I, I have how they say trans my gender. Uh, so, it's happened. This yeah, can happen. You spend long enough in left wing politics and there's a decent chance. Yeah. The problem the problem is is like I can hear what I said last time in the in the back of my head and I keep oh, well, sort of saying you... yeah. the same things but in slightly different ways and it's this is <laughs> fucking with my head. It's uh, like some part of you thinks, Oh, I'd I'd better phrase it differently for a bit of variety. But yeah. no one's heard what we said last week. No. <laughs> so it doesn't matter. <laughs> I am thinking about editing down your half of the audio into a special David cast where it's just yeah. you talking for an hour. <laughs> yeah, totally. Uh, it'd be interesting. Yeah, it it's, can be sort of a lot um, of it would make no sense because <laughs> I could sort of like interject newly recorded segments where I sort of say a sentence or two yeah. to set up what you're about to say. I am considering doing that. It would be it would it would be a fair bit of work. It would actually be more mm. work probably than I mean, especially at the moment out a there's regular a lot to episode. Do, so yes, but uh, we'll see. Anyway, so an Easter egg. well, Halloween egg indeed. Yeah, well, yeah, uh, that's a pumpkin. A pumpkin. Yeah, a pumpkin. <laughs> yeah, Halloween eggs are. Don't talk to me about pumpkins. <laughs> I've had, I've had leaky pumpkins today. Not a euphemism. Everyone, no, absolutely not. I wish it were. I don't know what it would mean. But... <laughs> yeah, I know neither do I. But it would probably be easier to deal with than pumpkin. Rotten pumpkin juice leaking all over the kitchen, which is what actually happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, along with the shower leaking through the ceiling via a light fitting. Uh, it's been a day, and <laughs> it's only 4pm. I think we must have angered the Halloween spirits. Yeah, that'd be what it is. It's a sour. You buy a pumpkin but don't carve it. Well, we were going to, come and but then it, it died. Yeah, right. We just didn't realise to what extent it had died. Yeah. Um, we probably should have got rid of it earlier. Anyway. I think we covered that story. I think we have. That is, <laughs> oh, as far as I'm concerned, that's one of the most major stories yeah. of the last few weeks. Um, because it happened to me and I got my hands covered in pumpkin juice. But um, let's have a look. Mm. Um, yeah. So uh, we should probably start with the big story of the last year. Yeah. Let's ease in with something light, <laughs> which is the... Uh... The apocalypse. <laughs> For those of you listening to this so blissfully far in the future, you have forgotten or were never aware. Like when this, in the future, when this podcast has become a canonical sort of classic of of culture, people continue to study it. When little little baby socialists are sort of mm. you know learning this at the knee along with Marx and Kropotkin. Um, yeah, um, coronavirus is a thing. Which is this really? It's a nasty, it's a nasty viral pneumonia type thing, which came from bats probably, and then infected humans maybe via pangolins, and is killing everyone. Uh, I think over a mi- over a million people have died worldwide. There's been ten million cases in Europe. Uh, we just passed that milestone this morning. I don't know what the worldwide cases oh, wow. are for the top of my head, but um. It's not going friends, Romans, it's not countrymen. Good. Yeah, <laughs> it's not going well. I'm trying not to use ladies and gentlemen, because it's it's exclusionary reasons, of yeah. non-binary people. But um, so I'm thinking of friends, Romans, countrymen. That's good. Uh, falling back on that old one. Comrades is good. I think. Comrades is good. Citizens. Comrades is good, but it needs 
it needs more. You know, the thing is with comrades is... Yeah, you don't want... Sometimes you want to address a group of people, not all of whom are comrades. That's true. And then also I think it's it's just... It doesn't have the same sort of feel as something like ladies and gentlemen or friends, Romans, countrymen. It, it's, it's too short. It needs to be something to pair with comrades. Mm. I can't think of anything. Haters and losers. <laughs> yeah, that's the alternative. You're either a comrade or you're a loser. Yeah. <laughs> Way. We have fun. Um... <laughs> it's just, it, it's just, this is a very side point. I don't want to spend too much time on it. But I wonder to what extent has Trump being president affected the human... The, the human. <laughs> I suppose it is human. What I mean to say is the English language. Because <laughs> um, people speak differently now. Don't they? People yeah. use phrases that I, I strongly suspect that people use the word tremendous more than they... That seems quite likely. I certainly don't think I ever... I ever would have sort of used the word bigly no. for <laughs> the advent of of Donald Trump. Yeah. Um, It'd be good if haters and losers becomes a... Because that's where I'm getting that from. Of course. Yeah. We could we could reappropriate it mm. for the left. Anyway. Yes, indeed. So, uh, coronavirus, bad, killing everyone, not good. Um, we are speaking currently, as contemporary listeners will know, in the middle of the sort of ramping up of the second wave so-called not that the first wave ever really ended but the second sort of Indeed, yeah. spike in cases um and things are going interestingly mm. <laughs> so basically the government of the united kingdom and more specifically the, the government of the united kingdom in its capacity as the english government has chosen to approach this second build-up of cases on a local region by region basis and well there's a bunch of stories today in the papers about how boris johnson the prime minister is now considering uh, having to implement a national lockdown despite his desire because the data is so damning so that shows you about how well that's gone mm. <laughs> i mean what struck me recently as this second wave goes is how many aspects of the dynamics of how this has has, has moved into the second wave parallel things which happened in the first wave Mm-hmm. You've had, you've got, you know, other European countries starting to have to move into proper lockdowns again. France has recently announced some very stringent restrictions, which are very similar to what happened in the first wave. Mm-hmm. And yet, despite the fact that Britain is on the same trajectory as countries like France, Belgium, Italy, whatever, the government is dragging its feet and not going into a lockdown, even though probably we're going to have to at some point, which means that our second wave is going to be worse, going to be more economic damage. All of this happened the first time. Yeah. They no, haven't absolutely. learned anything. <laughs> no. Well, yeah, I mean, and and people, you know, scientists in particular, epidemiologists, medical doctors, have been calling for what they've been calling a, a two-week circuit breaker yeah. lockdown for, for, for weeks. Um, and Labour eventually came around to back that policy as well. Um, but now it's too late. Mm. I mean... And of the four nations of the UK, England's the only one which hasn't done it. Yeah. Is that true? Does Scotland done it? Yeah, I think so. Okay, I know. I knew Wales had. Right, I'm sure wrong, Scotland had. But I'm pretty sure. But I... but yeah. Um, but I remember. I remember. I was reading an article earlier today. But I um, was interviewing a, a bunch of sort of professors of epidemiology, and they were all saying, "Yeah, it's too late now. We two weeks wouldn't wouldn't do no. anything. or wouldn't do nearly enough." What's the point of a circuit breaker? Is to is to get the cases down whilst they're still quite low, so that you don't have to go into a lockdown for very long. Yeah, but people are now saying. I think the current estimate is that in the most recent week of data that they've been able to look at. So I think that's the week the week commencing the 23rd of October. Approximately half a million people in the UK have been infected. That's an estimate, of course, because it's extrapolating from tests that we have done 
into parts of the population that haven't been tested. But still, I mean, half a million is in a week. Clearly, this is. And that's huge. Yeah, it's 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 bad. Because the really worrying thing is the rates at which this disease can grow. Mm-hmm. And so, if you're if it's being increased by that amount, yeah, that's what's really worrying. Yeah, they're now talking about I mean, the lockdown that's being floated is probably going to last at least until December, so that's a month. Mm. And I suspect, I suspect, I can't, I think if they bring a lockdown in now, I can't see cases getting down towards a safe level before Christmas. And of course, people will be desperate to have some semblance, however much they can get, of normality over Christmas. Yeah, yeah. You know, so I think the government will be under a lot of pressure. There are people who have, often people see family and friends and people that they don't see most of the year at Christmas, because that's kind of what Christmas is all about. Especially this year, that's true. There are people who have, deliberately as it were cut themselves off from people that normally they might see two or three times throughout the year normally that's not enough and we need christmas to to reconnect with people that we only see very occasionally throughout most of the year whereas this year people haven't seen each other at all (laughs) and it's entirely possible even quite likely i think that they won't be able to see most of those people at christmas yeah um and you know of course you know not everyone celebrates christmas and i know that eid eid was scuppered in in many places by the imposition of uh sort of local lockdowns, I think, in, in, in Manchester, among other places. Yeah, I remember that. Um, so, so, you know, some communities have already had this sort of happen to them. But I think, you know, definitely most people in the United Kingdom, even people who aren't Christian, which I don't think either of us are, <laughs> particularly. I'm not terribly. <laughs> no. Um, still celebrate Christmas and still have it as their sort of main sort of holiday period, even if they don't celebrate it for theological reasons mm-hmm. um i mean that's true of many muslims as well i i, I have Mus- muslim friends from from school who used to celebrate christmas because why wouldn't they it's yeah. great yeah right <laughs> christmas is good they've got they've got jesus in the quran it's certified yeah, yeah, that's a good point, actually there's, there's a certain yeah. amount of theological basis mm. no it's it's bad i mean and um so the the problem that has been the, the kind of patchy way that the lockdowns have been run in england specifically has led to situations whereby you have places that are in tier two restrictions don't get the funding to support them the right, yeah. places that are in tier three would get um which means that in many places uh, who have been stuck in tier two restrictions like uh birmingham until recently i think they have been sort of desperate to be moved up to tier three because they're desperate for the funding Whereas other places, such as uh, obviously Manchester, with uh, Andy Burnham, obviously has been in the news a lot, sort of railing against the imposition of Tier 3 restrictions, because he thinks that the support that's given under Tier 3, whilst certainly significantly more than you get under Tier 2, isn't enough and doesn't make up for the increased restrictions. It's nothing like what we got nationwide in the first round. No. So a clear example of that is the fact that furlough, when it is reintroduced, is a what is it, 60%, two-thirds of your wages? Something like that? Yes. As opposed to in the first round, it was 80%. And mm-hmm. I think it's still the case that the Chancellor has not given any reason why it's less. No. Certainly, some people will read this, and I think that you know they're not necessarily wrong to read it this way. It does seem to be that when it was the whole country, then, then it has to be quite high. But when it's a Tory government, which only needs to impose it on Northerners, it doesn't need to be so high, because they don't really care. 
No, exactly. I mean, they, they only have about a third of the seats in Greater Manchester anyway. Right, and yeah. Frankly, if they lost them, they'd still have a majority, so they don't particularly yeah. care. I mean, it should be said that uh, Rishi Sunak has eventually been forced to slightly increase the... Um, you now get a little more than you did before. And also, crucially, your employer doesn't have to pay so much of it. So uh, previously, uh, you had to work at least a third of your hours. Your employer was paying another third on top. And then the government... Whereas now, the amount of... The amount of it's slightly more generous overall, and the amount of money that both you and your employer proportionally is less, and the government's contributing more. So he has been forced to um, walk back his originally quite stringent policies a bit, um, mainly just due to opposition from certain people within the cabinet itself. I mean, there's been a big, big, big fight really the whole time throughout this sort of pandemic between the kind of more Johnsonian type conservatives who are happy with a bit more state intervention and state spending in certain cases, on the one hand, and mainly Rishi Sunak on the other, who is very much more in the kind of George Osborne austerity mould. Mm. It reminds me of a little bit is that I seem to remember that this was part of why Rishi Sunak is Chancellor now, is because Sajid Javid was even more so in that camp. Yeah. He's a read Ayn Rand to your children kind of <laughs> conservative. <laughs> yeah. Oh God, that's horrifying. I think I'm not making that up. I think I might be misremembering it, but I'm pretty sure that's true. What, that he reads Ayn Rand to his children? Or maybe to his wife. I, I can't remember it properly, but there's something about Rishi's, um, uh, Sajid Javid and Ayn Rand. Horrifying. Why does anyone like Ayn Rand? The I books are <laughs> a thousand pages long or something. They're mostly... like there's, there's one speech in Atlas Shrugged that goes on for 40 pages or something. Mm-hmm. The woman can't write. Yeah. You know, even if her ideas weren't balmy... You know, the fact remains that she can't write. Yeah. They are by right-wing standards as well. They're not terribly philosophically. No. I mean, what kind of how, how bloody arrogant do you have to be to come up with a, a philosophy and call it objectivism? objectivism yeah. You might as well just <laughs> call it rightism or correctism. Yeah. It's, I'm right by definition because I say so. If... Oh, yeah. It's absurd. Yeah. It's, it's a weird sort of philosophical move that people make sometimes. of Because it purports to start from objective bases and then derive everything through logic that says okay so the human being exists it has a relationship to the world blah 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 therefore free market economics it's sort of Mm -hmm. it's it's denying that there is even such a thing as the possibility of things being politically contentious or there being such a thing as a legitimate debate it's a really yeah silly (laughs) that's that's a foul move when it comes to um, proper inquiry trying to say that people aren't even allowed to disagree with you. I mean, it is a move that a lot of ideologies try and make. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, there's, there's, there's a concept which comes from, um, in at least large part, from a philosopher called Michael Frieden, um, which is that ideologies are, in essence, or at least can be viewed as competitions for the control of language. Um, and I think in particular, so you have sort of like liberalism, libertarianism, socialism, conservatism will all sort of squabble over the meaning of freedom, for example. So oh, yeah, totally, yeah. Libertarians want to try and define it as, like, absolute property rights and nothing else. And progressive liberals will say more, oh, no, it's, it's about maximising opportunities for development. And yeah, then yeah, an anarchist yeah. might say it's about non-domination and the ability of the human being to flourish without sort of um, constraint from, like, hierarchies of power. Yeah, yeah, totally. But I think the thing with Ayn Rand is that she takes that one step, she goes one step further back with it, I suppose. She says mm-hmm, humans mm-hmm. are beings in the objective world with a subjective experience of their own consciousness. Therefore, freedom must mean this. Yeah. So she doesn't just contend over the meaning of words that are that are involved in political discussions. 
It's just to say that there is only one political consequence, the only view of the human being that there, that you could reasonably have. It's not mm-hmm. recognising that human nature is something which is also political. People disagree about what it is to be human as well. And human human nature is extremely malleable. Yeah, yeah, well, totally. Um, you know, m- many of the things that we think are human nature now were certainly not human nature 200 years ago, because mm. ideological concepts like liberalism have changed the way humans think. There's an analogy that I came, that I came across recently about what Marx thought about human nature, which is that his basic position is that human nature does very much exist, but it's always conditioned by the circumstances that the humans are in. So humans mm. have a fundamental nature, but it's it's also... There's no such thing as a human who is only their fundamental nature. They always have... You, human nature is, does, is meaningless unless it's in a particular manifestation of it. So mm. hunger is a human thing, but hunger is very different depending on the social conditions that you're in. So the, the hunger of humans before and after we invented cooking is different yeah. because we have the notion of hunger and but you want some cheese. <laughs> only makes sense in a society where cheese exists. Can you imagine living in a society where cheese didn't exist? I know. I mean, that is like the majority of human society on Earth now, right? Like, <laughs> milk gone off. But, yeah, most most people in 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 Eastern Asia, Sub-Saharan Africa, uh, South America don't eat cheese. Oh, cheese is weird, like, but it's goodness. really good as well. What are they missing? <sighs> I'd I'd like to report that that uh, that all of my friends I know who are lactose intolerant, including at least one who is Chinese. Mm. Uh, resolutely refuse to accept this fact and eat cheese and yogurts and things anyway because it's good yeah it's a repeated thing that when you you, um if you speak to vegans that giving up dairy particularly cheese is much worse than giving up meat yeah i can believe that i live in a house full of vegetarians and vegans Mm. as you know i don't think anyone's vegan at the moment i think i think those who were vegans gave it up for lockdown because they were finding it very difficult to get a lot of the food that they would normally substitute for eggs. Right, okay, yeah. Um, and therefore we're struggling to get protein, but uh, but yeah. I, I I find myself surrounded by by vegetable ill consumed. <laughs> it's, just, it's just me, like, just watch out some chicken, like, hey. It's okay, because one of my housemates has a dog, and I sometimes share my chicken with her, and then I feel better. Yeah. But yeah, anyway, um, back to coronavirus. So... <laughs> <laughs> You come for the tangents, you know you do. The only reason anyone ever listens to this is for the tangents. Yeah, yeah. You could get the rest of it anywhere else. Um, no, I shouldn't say that. You couldn't get the rest of it anywhere else. We are unique and special. If you don't, I'll cry. Um, but yeah, so uh, something I wanted to bring up, which I found very interesting, is this sort of formation of this new block within the Conservative Party um, who have sort of dubbed themselves, dubbed themselves the Northern Research Group. Oh, okay. I haven't so this heard is, of this. So. Yeah, so this is obviously sort of modelled after the European research group, uh, the group of extremely hardline Eurosceptics who ultimately sort of rejected Theresa May's deal, basically cost her, her prime ministership, and have all the way through the Brexit process finagling things to try and get the hardest line Brexit they possibly can. Uh, so the Northern Research Group have modelled themselves on this, um, and they consist of uh, 55 members of Parliament from the Conservative Party representing seats in the North and Midlands. Um, there are 41 out in the open and there are 14 who remain anonymous mm. and to quote The Guardian are thought to include serving members of the government. Ooh, blimey. Ooh, spooky. It's Halloween. 
so yeah, they, they, they wrote a letter to the government and specifically to the prime minister the other day, um, basically demanding what they call a clear roadmap out of lockdown. So basically their argument runs roughly thus, that um, mostly so far the local lockdowns have been in the North and Midlands, mm-hmm. and that not having any clear sort of criteria for when these local lockdowns will be ended puts people and puts businesses, of course, they're the Tories, they're very concerned about businesses, in the North of England um, in a very, very difficult position because they are sort of unable to plan for the future, they don't know what's going to be happening because there's no criteria by which they can look at the data and say, okay, cases are coming down this much, so we'll probably be able to reopen in a week or a month or two months. They, Because no criteria have been laid out, they aren't able to do that. They're also asking for this sort of levelling up agenda that um, Boris Johnson was talking about a lot before the pandemic mm-hmm. bit. And they're basically saying that so far we haven't really seen any of this, and in particular the North and the Midlands deserve a, a, a substantial share of the whatever new funding is going to be available because they've had to suffer um, sort of disproportionately so far from the coronavirus pandemic. And you know what? I don't think any of that is unreasonable. No. It's all, it's all perfectly... But yeah, I mean, so this is this is a lot of the people who are in the, what, what were called... There's this weird thing about the Red Wall. You know the Red Wall? The Red Wall seats. 2019, yeah. and Labour lost the Red Wall seats. You, had you ever heard the term Red Wall before the 2019 nope. general election? Mm-hmm. Nope. Completely made up out of nowhere. <laughs> Completely made up. But anyway, and this is a lot of the Tory MPs who were in those previous Red Wall, in scare quotes, seats. Come to think of it, I seem to remember that in the 2016 American election, they, people did use the phrase blue wall to refer to states like Wisconsin yeah. and Michigan. Yeah. Which all went to Trump, so I think it might be a, a, a sort of a borrowing. A reference no, to I that. think you're probably... Oh, I, I should say there is one of the MPs in question. It's actually um, in Scotland. Scotland is north of England. Yeah, it's a seat in the Scottish borders area right. in the south of Scotland, which has a very kind of English-oriented sort of politic. Well, over the many centuries, the English-Scottish border has moved a lot. So yes, people exactly. that are near the border on yeah. both sides are kind yeah. of a mixed influences Quite. historically. Yes. I mean, you only have to look at Berwick. Yeah, right, yeah. Didn't yeah. <laughs> that change hands 14 times or yeah. something? Technically yeah. in England, but they still play in the Scottish League. Absolutely. Beautiful. Beautiful Barrack. Yeah. Barrack upon Tweed, this is. Go if you can. But not, <laughs> not right now, because there's a lockdown on. Um... <laughs> this episode is sponsored by the Barrack Tourism mm. Board. <laughs> it should be. No, no adverts. Maybe they'll send us a lot of, because we've mentioned it on air, they'll send us a big load of Tweed or something. <laughs> yeah. This is a creative... I don't think it works like that. This is a Creative Commons attribution share alike license podcast. You, the people, can do whatever you fucking want. Yeah. With this podcast, including edit out me saying the word fucking. If you want. Which I might do myself. Yeah. <laughs> only one of them. Again, I might not. Sorry? Only one of them. Yeah, though. only one of them. Yeah. <laughs> and we do not run ads on this podcast. Because no. if we did so, we would be massive hypocrites. Mm-hmm. But I did make yeah, a Patreon but... ages ago that I've never actually used, yeah. but I might stick that up. And you can give us money if you want because we're poor. We're just talking um, about how much we like Beric out of the goodness of our hearts. Yeah. <laughs> And there is very much goodness in our hearts, particularly for Barrack. Yeah. yeah, anyway, I thought this sort of Northern Research Group manifestation is interesting because they, they seem to be directing a lot of their ire very specifically at Rishi Sunak. Mm. And Andy Burnham, as well, um, was quoted the other week as saying, the problem now is, to a large degree, the Chancellor. And I think 
this is Rishi Sunak throughout most of this period has been getting quite a lot of plaudits for the way he's handled things. But I think that is slowly starting to yeah, change now. So it does seem to be a thing that over the last year or so, the Tories have, have been doing various things that make it look like they're kind of grooming Rishi Sunak for future leader. Mm-hmm. And just recently, in a few different ways, it's sort of fallen apart a bit. And he's, he's got some very seriously bad press, for example, over this. But also yeah. over the um, meal deals thing turning out to have been oh demonstrably goodness, had an impact on the spreading of, of yeah. coronavirus. Yeah. It's really enormous, actually. Way bigger, of course, than I thought. I can't remember the yeah. numbers on it, but the, I read the research and it's oh, quite serious. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I, I, he has he has gone from the sort of golden boy to, I think, his position is now somewhat precarious. And people have, I mean... At the start of the pandemic, I think most people were sort of blaming Boris Johnson for everything that went wrong. And ultimately, he is the prime minister. Mm-hmm. You know, he is ultimately responsible for the decisions made by the government. Uh, so that is correct in a certain sense. But I think people are now starting to realise that actually a large part of the fact that the pandemic response has been bungled is because you've got this tug of war in the cabinet between Rishi Sunak and Matt Hancock, the health secretary. And Boris Johnson is flitting from one to the other, trying to balance things, but being very indecisive, as he generally is, and not doing very well. Mm. well. And that it's Sunak's position, essentially, that we are going to have to live with the coronavirus for a long time. Lockdowns aren't going to be very helpful in the long term. And so essentially what we should do is we should take care, first and foremost, of the economy. And by the economy, he, of course, doesn't mean people. Um... You know, because that would be ridiculous, right? You know, why would the people of the country matter at all to the mm. economy? No, he means businesses and growth rates. Yeah, there are ways that you could try to help the economy, which would be much more helpful than what he's doing. Of course, yeah. I mean, basically, he is blinded by his sort of neoliberal blinkers mm. from realizing that you can't fundamentally have a flourishing economy if people are dying and are terrified of dying. Yeah. Uh, it just can't be done because the economy isn't a, some kind of abstract, reified thing that exists out there in the ether. It is a emergent phenomenon of human interactions. Mm-hmm. But of course, if one accepted that, one would be a socialist. Yeah. So um, <laughs> he can't. But yeah, it's really terrible. I mean, it's essentially, as I said on the last episode, just it's it's the recycled, it's the same recycled ideas that George Osborne had in the aftermath of the 2008 financial crisis and the argument was bogus then and it is if anything even more bogus now yeah, i think more obviously bogus as well quite i think people are starting to wake up mm. and realize it um hashtag wake up people mm. uh <laughs> like, so a huge part of of how austerity was justified to the public was throughout all kinds of demonizing poor and working class people and, and immigrants of course the first sort of sharp edge of that stuff which we've seen recently is the um has gone with the free school and there's been a huge amount of propaganda pumped out saying things like you know just being anti-single parents and uh, if, oh, if yeah. you're too poor you shouldn't have children or all that kind of stuff and it seems to have not really landed very well certainly not as well as the benefits claimants was in 2012 no yeah absolutely uh people got people of you know marcus rashford's campaigns uh, to alleviate uh food poverty over the summer holidays and again now over half term and presumably it's going to come up again at christmas um, and universal credit, you know, is in a terrible state as it has been since it was introduced, but now it's starting to show through to more people because more people are having to rely on it. I mean, I suppose it's harder it, to demonize people when, when those very things are so much more widespread. It's yeah, it makes it much more difficult. Yeah, because most people 
now are in a position where if they aren't facing these kinds of hardships themselves, they probably at least know someone who is. And they know that it wouldn't take much to put them in that position as well. Yeah. And it, and it's much much like, you know, with, with immigration, where it's actually, it's the areas where, you know, um, non-immigrants and immigrants sort of mix more freely are the areas where attitudes to immigration are far more positive. Because once you know people who are in that situation, it's much, much more difficult mm, for the right-wing right. press to demonize them. Because you can say, but my friend, you know, down the road... Who is in? Who is a member of category X that you're trying to demonise? Yeah, the fact that you've got so much more in common with them than you do with the government yeah. who's trying to cut your public services is really exactly. obvious if you know them personally. Yeah, whereas it's much it's it's equally true if you don't, but much less obvious to most people. Um, understandably so, because people, <clears throat> you know, people are living in a situation where much of the media is constantly trying to pretend and to convince people that their interests are in conflict with yeah. immigrants or benefit claimants or black people or whoever it happens to be that week. Um, and it, it, it isn't surprising, and it, to an extent it isn't necessarily people's fault if they're in a situation where it's easier for them to be convinced of that. Hmm. Uh, yeah. But yeah, it's it's going to be... It's going to be a nasty winter. I mean, I, a, a personal message. I got COVID... At the end of May, um, I first noticed symptoms on, I think, the 30th. Um, and I ended up having the sort of acute phase of the virus with the loss of taste, the coughing, the fever, things like that. And it lasted about five weeks until that had mostly died down. And then even now, you know, five months later, I still get chest pains. I still get tightness of breath if I try and do any physical exercise. I cannot do a fifth of what I could do physically at the beginning of this year. It is really serious, even if you are young. You know, I'm 24. Even if you are in otherwise in reasonably good health. If you catch this, not everyone, but a substantial percentage of people are going to have serious long-term side effects. And I really, really urge everyone listening to this, please do everything you can to stay safe and keep your loved ones safe. Because, you know, this is horrible. I've had it. I've I've seen my my partner have it, and you know it, it, the, you know sometimes you're just in so much pain. It, I need you know it brings me to tears just thinking about it. So please be safe. You know, please be safe. Amen. What? Oh, it's oh, time for you what? to get. It's time for you to get nice. <laughs> so, on our lost episode, we talked. Um, for a fair while about Keir Starmer and his leadership of the Labour Party. And I would say that, on balance, David's opinion was more favourable toward Keir Starmer than mine was. Yeah, I had a strong contingent of, I wanted to give him a fair shot. (laughs) Yeah, which is an understandable concern. I certainly was of that sort of mindset at the beginning of his leadership. Um, I think I became disillusioned with him. Sort of over the Long Bailey sacking, I think that was the moment where I was like, this is very clearly a vindictive move against someone on the left of the party over a completely fabricated um, charge. I mean, she was sacked from her position as Shadow Education Secretary for sharing on Twitter an article from The Independent where... Uh, the actress Maxine Peaks had been interviewed, during which she had made an offhand comment about Israeli and American 
police sort of co-training exercises where she slightly incorrectly attributed a particular tactic to having been taught the Americans by the Israelis, yeah, which so, turned out... So those really joint crazy. training things and the sharing of techniques definitely do happen. Yes. No one's denying that. It's just that the there is no explicit evidence that that particular technique was taught to the Americans by the Israelis. And also that wasn't what Reckon Betty was referencing. She was sharing the article for a different reason. It was a long interview, and then they talked on several topics. It's just that this was also mentioned in a different part of the interview, which was published in an article in the, in the Independent, which they tweeted, and then Rebecca Long-Bailey retweeted. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that apparently means that you can't have a future at the top of British politics. Is that the standard that we're setting now? Ridiculous. Yeah. I, was, I think it was on the same day, or at least it was, it was a similar time, that Rachel Reeves... Um, tweeted out a very sort of glowing um, saying lots of nice things about uh, uh, an actual Nazi. And yet she's still in the in a senior member of the Shadow Cabinet. But she's a Blairite, so yeah. that's allowed. that's the thing, right? So this yeah. is saying, pointing out that it is factional is not itself factional. It's just the truth. Yes. And I mean, yeah, it, it was framed at the time. Keir Starmer sort of said, well, I asked her to remove the uh, particular tweet and she refused, so I had no choice. And, I mean, why should someone take down a social media post that they made completely in good faith, which isn't in and of itself at all offensive mm. to anybody looking at it with any degree of objectivity? And then, it took, of course, it turned out after the fact that uh, in the run-up to this incident, um, Rebecca Long-Bailey had been disagreeing with Kistarmer and with other members of the Shadow Cabinet about whether to support the government's plans to reopen schools. Mm. And so it turned out, actually, it was not only factional, but it was it was about... In, you know, it, it seems at least to have been in large part about specific policy of theirs that she didn't like and therefore, you know, she was out. Yeah. And this was just the excuse. And as I say, I was willing to look past that. <laughs> but more recently, well, let's just say events have transpired in the last few days which have rendered David's opinion <laughs> somewhat changed, less somewhat altered. Yeah. <laughs> David, would you like to explain why you've changed your mind a little on this issue? Okay. <laughs> to so... the good people of the audience. <laughs> So let's just stop dancing around it and say that the thing is that the former immediate predecessor as leader of the Labour Party from Keir Starmer, Jeremy Corbyn, has been suspended from the party. Keir Starmer claims it wasn't his decision, although it obviously was. Mm -hmm. But, you know, he's both a liar and a coward, so he's pretending that it's not his decision. (laughs) But anyway, um, for... So the context of this is that... um, the Equality and Human Rights is a commission or council? Commission. Commission, yeah. Um, has been investigating the Labour Party over uh, the problem of there being anti-Semitism in the party. And into actually, quite specifically, the report is about whether anything which violates the Equalities Act was done by employees of the party. Acting in their position in their as agents yeah. of the party. Yeah. And this has been a contentious issue for a long time, right? And this, I was hoping to be, what I was expecting to be talking about about this, would be the moment to start trying to talk sensibly about this issue, to remove it from the factionalism which has made it so difficult to talk about um, until now. Keir Starmer has made the decision that rather than taking that opportunity, he's going to massively ramp up the extent to which this is riven with factional. And when asked about this, uh, I think yesterday... He said, I don't want a civil war. 
Yeah, right. Well then, here, you shouldn't have fired the starting gun on one. Yes. You can't claim you don't want to cause a civil war in the party at the same time as shooting in the back one of the most beloved and important and prominent members on the left of the party for the last 50 years. Hmm. I wonder if, if when Charles I raised his standard in Nottingham, I think it was in Nottingham, and declared war on so. Parliament, if he then said, I hope this doesn't lead to a civil war. Uh, you, you know, he... <laughs> I, I, yeah, I don't know if he said something. I don't know if he said exactly those words, but having having uh, having studied the uh, the English Civil War a little bit in the past, I can absolutely guarantee you he would have said something yeah, right. rather similar. So uh, because he was just that type. Yeah. <laughs> so the thing is, the report did not recommend. It actually didn't particularly call out Jeremy Corbyn personally at all. It's actually. I'm not sure if he's even named. No, it's a, it's a fairly well balanced report. Um. But Jeremy Corbyn has been suspended for... Well, the thing is, they haven't actually said what he's been suspended for. Because he hasn't broken any rules. So they can't. <laughs> but... No. Um, what everyone's reporting it as, and what it's quite clearly is proximally caused by, was his response to the uh, to the publishing of the report. In which he yeah. basically, had, very graciously and balanced way, said... Um, this is an incredibly important issue. I hope that all of the recommendations of this report are implemented as quickly as possible, and I recognise that my leadership made mistakes and move on and do better on this issue. But he also made the factually true comment that there has been a false impression of what the uh, of the scale of anti-Semitism complaints towards people in the Labour Party is in the way that this has been reported. Yeah. And... We are making the assumption that that is what he's been suspended. Now, because prior to um, Jeremy Corbyn making his statement, Keir Starmer said something along the lines of, um, you know, any, anyone making out that this is, you know, purely a factional thing um, shouldn't be in the Labour Party. Mm. Which he didn't Which, say. to be clear, Jeremy Corbyn very much did not do. Yes. He said that it's been... Oh, there is also the fact that the media have reported this as if, as if Jeremy Corbyn said that the EHRC report is exaggerating anti-Semitism. Exactly, it's not yeah. true. That's not what he said, and it kind of proves his point. That that saying that is exaggerating. <laughs> it proves his point. The fact that they say he says that the report is exaggerating when he didn't say that is proof that the media have been exaggerating. They've been doing that. It, media misreporting of pretty much everything Jeremy Corbyn says and does on this issue has been endemic, and it's been happening on these issues, and that proves his point. That is not the same thing as saying anti-Semitism in the Labour Party doesn't exist, it's been made up for factional. Which is not what he said, because that's not true. No, of course <laughs> not. I mean, there are undoubtedly, certainly, anti-Semites in the Labour Party. Yeah. There are anti-Semites in all walks of life in the United Kingdom, but particularly in certain sections of the left. There has been a tendency to equate certain, sort of, uh, certain, certain actions of the Israeli government or certain... Um, certain actions by sort of international finance capital, for example, mm. with some kind of Jewish, specifically well, are, Jewish influence. There are particular ways that anti-Semitism manifests on the left that are specific yes. to the left. Absolutely. There's a brilliant article about this that um, I read a little while ago that I shall link in the show notes because everyone should read it, uh, written by a, a Jewish socialist. But but yeah, I mean, it, it, it's been called the, the socialism of fools mm. uh, before mm. anti-Semitism, and there are undoubtedly anti-Semites on the left. There always have been. 
I very much hope one day there won't be, but I think that day is probably yeah. quite far off in the future. Oh, and just to make it absolutely clear, Jeremy Corbyn is not party to it at all. No. Jer- Jeremy Corbyn is not an anti-Semite. Anyone claiming that Jeremy Corbyn is an anti-Semite doesn't understand a thing about what anti-Semitism is or who Jeremy Corbyn is. The no. only thing that Jeremy Corbyn has done during his entire career that I can work out that could justifiably be called into question was in 2012 when he called in the comments of a post in a private Facebook group um, that a particular mural uh, that was painted by a graffiti artist in uh, his patch in London shouldn't have been erased by the anti-graffiti squad because he considered it, you know, essentially graffiti art shouldn't be treated in that way. That particular mural, it turned out, featured some anti-Semitic tropes, which it indisputably did. Mm. Um, But Jeremy Corbyn pointed out that that wasn't the basis for his objection and also that he basically hadn't paid that much attention to it and he regretted that fact. Yes, and as soon as he realised that the reason why it had been taken down is because people have complained about it on the grounds that it is anti-Semitic, he immediately said, oh, I didn't realise that was the problem, therefore it should have been taken down. Quite. Yeah, indisputably that was a mistake, mm-hmm. but that doesn't belie some kind of fundamental mean hatred that, in his heart. But if you if you made a small factual error eight years ago, which you immediately corrected, that doesn't mean that you, in a two-party political system, you should be banned from participating in either of the two main parties. If, if that is the standard, then that then we're not a free society, we're not a democracy. No. Right? No, absolutely. Um... Completely ridiculous. Mm. So, the EHRC report uh, basically calls out the Labour Party for three specific things. Mm-hmm. Um, for the fact that its training on anti-Semitism wasn't up to standard, um, which is true, you know, it's quite right, um, mm-hmm. that there were political interventions in the disciplinary process, so the disciplinary process wasn't fully independent, and... Um, What's the other one? Harassment, which has quite a specific legal definition in this context. Yes. Now, and there were, I should point out there are only two unambiguous cases of harassment oh, yes, yeah. that, that were substantiated by the HRC. Both of whom were then kicked out of the party under Jeremy Corbyn. Right? <laughs> now, another problem with the way that this story has been reported recently is that when people have been saying political interventions in the disciplinary process, that has been framed as if that's Corbyn intervening to to make the disciplinary process easier on people who are accused of anti-Semitism. That is not true. Right? Many of these interventions, most of them in fact, have been the leadership office intervening in a, a bureaucratic disciplinary process, which everyone, including the EHRC, recognised was inadequate in order to speed up people's being kicked out of the party. Now, that doesn't mean that was right, but it does mean that it is, it is misleading to report it as if these interventions were Corbyn trying to be soft on anti-Semites, is that he, he, his leadership didn't always follow proper procedure in their attempts to expedite the process of kicking people out of the party for anti-Semitism. It should also be noted that there is a wider practice within the Labour Party of uh, the leadership office intervening in internal party uh, disputes and disciplinary cases that are deemed politically sensitive, yes. which the anti-Semitism allegations to the Labour Party uh, during this period undisputably were. They were um, they were sort of being they were getting so much press in the media that the leadership office felt it necessary to intervene in these, um, along with other. Uh, disputes and cases 
that didn't have anything to do with anti-Semitism in order to make sure they were dealt with properly. Yeah, and it, the irony, supreme irony of this is that that's exactly what Keir Sam has just done. It's, yes. It's politically intervene in the, um, uh, in the disciplinary process to kick Jeremy Corbyn out. <laughs> yeah. It, frankly, it is... <sighs> yeah. It, it, it also... A lot of the reporting around this has also ignored the previous report, the uh, sort of the initial internal report mm. conducted by the Labour Party into these allegations. Which was to be submitted to the EHRC. Yes, which was leaked, uh, what, back at the beginning of this year, mm-hmm. um, not long after Keir Starmer taken over, or possibly even before he'd taken over, or around the same time. Anyway, um, in which that report made it very clear that various members, officials within the Labour Party machinery from the right of the party had repeatedly sabotaged the efforts of the leadership and of the disciplinary procedure to deal with anti-Semitism cases in order to make Jeremy Corbyn look bad yeah. because they didn't want him. Yes, and it's, this, this goes back to a point about Keir Starmer that he's he's often talking about how we... So he's framing anyone who mentions the factional element of this as if they are dismissing any claims that there's anti-Semitism in the Labour Party as a factional attack. Now, that's not what people are saying. The point, the way to get rid of the factionalism, which is endemic in the Labour Party and has therefore had an effect on the way that this issue has been dealt with the, and obviously on any attempt to reform the internal bureaucracy of the party to make it more capable of dealing with um, violations of its internal rules will be affected by the fact that different branches of the party are recognising that there is factionalism is not itself an attempt to make there be more factionalism. The only way to get rid of the factionalism is not to deny that there ever was any or that it had any effect that makes it impossible to ever yeah sort of and Keir Starmer ran for election to the leadership on a platform of uniting the party yeah right and what he has now done which was obviously completely like not true that was that wasn't his agenda no well I mean this gives the lie to that in the most spectacular and clear-cut way possible if your objective was to unite the Labour Party to sort of bring down the level of factionism factionalism within the Labour Party, the last thing you would do would be to suspend the mm. previous leader of the Labour Party but from a different part of the party In another country, if, if um, MAS in Bolivia, for example, if they'd come to power, if they'd had a new leader, and then within a few months of them becoming leader, immediately what they did was sack their, pri- their main primary opponent for obviously political reasons, in order to marginalise them within the party so that they're not a threat, and then immediately sack the uh, the, the previous leader of the party on obviously trumped up charges. And it, will we be saying, oh, well, this is obviously just perfect, this is just due process, this is just them following the internal party rules? No, it's obvious. It's obviously politically motivated, it's a coup, it's, yeah. Yeah. Right, so what Jeremy Corbyn has said in his response to the HRC report didn't violate any Labour Party rules or the law. What he did do was defend himself in very reasonable terms, whilst also acknowledging the ways in which his leadership did not deal with the problem properly, and the ways in which it needs to change. That is a person's right under due process to defend themselves, right? And to say things which are true under the Human Rights Act. And yet Kirsten apparently doesn't care about that either. So if someone is willing to deceive the people who they're trying to sell themselves to as an electorate, by claiming that their agenda is something other than it is, and then immediately flip as soon as they're elected, and they don't believe in due process and people's rights under the Human Rights Act, are they fit to... Certainly are they fit to run the Labour Party, are they fit to run anything, 
Are they fit to run the levers of the British state? I don't know. I'd, there's got to be a question whether that kind of person, whether you, whether a decent, think, right-thinking person can have it on their conscience to try and make that. No, I... Yeah. I Compare that to I what I was saying agree. a few days ago when I was being... Yeah, I'll, uh, <laughs> your audio from, from last yeah. week is perfectly fine, so I'll, 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 I'll put a little clip of yeah. what you said last week. Okay, pretty broad. If I can just talk about him for a bit, what's my take? So, in in many ways, it's too soon to say, really. Um, like the French Revolution, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, so for a start, I didn't vote for him. Um, I, I vote for Rebecca Long-Bailey, because I thought she'd be a better leader. But I'm not... Um, so, if there was an election tomorrow, I would be, I would definitely be voting Labour. Which, I, I would, he, he's only the second Labour leader I would have done that for. I didn't vote for Ed Miliband, for example. Because Labour Party policy is very different now than it was under Ed Miliband. Because policy is not all set by the leader's office, it's set by conference and then written in a complex compositing process by many different branches of the party. Um, and Conference hasn't really changed the policy direction very much yet. And Keir Sama was elected on 10 pledges, which um, on policy sound pretty good. If he sticks to them, I'll be very happy with him being prime minister. The question is, will he stick to them? And will he use the power and influence of the leader's office in the very complex policy-forming process of the Labour Party? And the influence of the leader's office is considerable to do everything that he can to jettison all of the radical policy. Or to what extent will he do that? Um, it's hard to say. There have been some quite bad signs <laughs> over the first part of his leadership. Um, but also... Um, so if you compare him to some previous Labour leaders that he has been compared to quite a lot, um, for example, Neil Kinnock, he is currently governing in a much less hostile way to the left of the party than Neil Kinnock did, for example. Yeah, uh, I think probably Keir Starmer is a... He's, it's actually quite an unusual position for someone to be in. We haven't had them very often. But I think he's basically an authentic centre-left kind of a person. He's not a radical left person, but he's not... What people call centre-left is usually actually centrist or centre-right in practice. I think he's more of a sort of... He's got some left-wing instincts and some centrist instincts, and he does everything that he can to try and do both all the time. I think, I think that's my, my broad take on Kistava. I mean, I must say, I'm holding fire on this to a certain extent because he, Jeremy Corbyn has not been expelled from the Labour Party. He's been suspended pending an investigation. So if that process is allowed to actually play out fairly and he is reinstated because he hasn't done anything wrong, then we can, we can call this a bad week and then move on and it's okay, I think. But the leadership have a choice to make. Do they, do they really want to destroy the party over this, over nothing? Or do they want to 
try and get into government. Because the party won't win if it's split like this. Divided parties like this do not win power. As it, one way of putting it, as someone said that I think is quite gets to the heart of this, is does Keir Starmer want to be Neil Kinnock or does he want to be Harold Wilson? Because what Harold Wilson didn't do is attack the left of the party. He didn't say, you can trust me because I'm stomping on the left. He said, we're going to try to come up with a policy um, platform which is a compromise between all parts of the party and then try and get elected as a unified party. And he won four general elections and changed Britain for the better. Whereas Neil Kinnock did the reverse. He attacked the left, tried to purge it from the party um, and lost two general elections, never became prime minister, destroyed the party for a generation and then paved the way for someone much further to his right to come after him. Which one of those does Keir Starmer want to be? That's the choice he's got. I don't even... I mean... your point is extremely eloquently put, but I don't even think he has to make that choice. All he has to do is follow the recommendations of the AHRC report, oh, yeah. not directly intervene in the disciplinary process, which is now about to unfold with regard to Jeremy Corbyn. Mm. Of course, he's already interfered once, so the likelihood is he will try to interfere again. Yeah. There's no, certainly no reason to believe he won't. I hope he's sensible and doesn't, but because, frankly... I would like the Labour Party to win the next general election mm. <laughs> because no one better is has a canal's chance of doing so and I want Boris Johnson's shower out. Yeah. I mean, if it, the legal case here, Jeremy Corbyn has a very strong case because he hasn't done anything wrong. He hasn't broken any rules. It's, that's it. So if due process is followed, he very likely will be reinstated. But it's just very unlikely for due process to be followed. And the problem is, is that the Labour Party leadership has a carte blanche excuse when it comes to suspensions and expulsions from the party, which is bringing the party into disrepute. Oh, yeah, that's good. They can define that almost anywhere they want. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Which is bad and should be gotten rid of, in my view. Um, Yes. How about uh, launching an illegal war in the Middle East? Oh, oh, I wasn't going to bring that up, (laughs) but uh, if you insist. I was going to say why I bring it up. It's because there's something people have been saying which really annoys me, which is that this is uh, the darkest day in Labour Party history. (laughs) Yes. Oh, my God. For God's sake. (laughs) What about yeah, when Atlee no. bombed people in Malaysia with napalm? Yeah. What about when half a million people, probably possibly as many as a million people, depending on how you calculate it, innocent people have been killed in the Middle East because of Tony Blair? Tell you what's happened about what about when when in during the referendum campaign in 2016, when a fascist stabbed a Labour Party to death in the streets and then screamed, Death to traitors, Britain first. Right? I take the uh, this is not underplaying the seriousness of anti-Semitism or the fact that it exists in the Labour Party and that more has to be done about it. But throughout this whole process of Labour anti-Semitism and whether the leadership dealt with it properly or not, no one died, right? And if that doesn't demonstrate that people have been exaggerating this issue, I don't know what will. Yeah. I don't really know how to follow that. I was going to rant about Tony Blair for a minute because you'd brought him up and I was trying not to and I hate him so fucking much. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, you're quite right. And the Labour Party consistently has been the major organ of the British state that has defended the rights of Jewish people yeah. in this country. Like, you, you Labour Party members f- uh, marched at the Battle of Cable Street against Mosley's black shirts right. to see off the threat of fascism in the 1930s. Jeremy Corbyn has, himself has been a consistent campaigner against anti-Semitism, you know, throughout his entire life. It, this is a ridiculous... A, a ridiculous campaign by certain right-wing elements of the Labour Party in order to make sure that the left are crushed out of existence mm. as a meaningful faction within the Labour Party. Of course there are anti-Semites in the Labour Party, and they should 
unquestionably be expunged from it. I do not want a single anti-Semite masquerading as a leftist anywhere on earth. Anyone who holds anti-Jewish prejudices and beliefs should be found out, should be, if they can, made to see the error of their ways, and if they refuse to see the error of their ways, they should be absolutely kicked out of any organisation that has even the merest claim to call itself left-wing. You know, that is unquestionable and undeniable. And I agree with Jeremy Corbyn that the EHRC report's recommendations should be swiftly implemented. Yeah, me too. I've been reading the report uh, today, and they seem remarkably even-handed and fair. It's one of the major achievements of the Blair government, is the existence of the EHRC. I like that we live in a country where there is an organisation like this that can come into, uh, you know, non-state bureaucracies like political parties or corporations and vet them for discrimination and racism and has legal power that's good yeah no it's fantastic um and and again but and and as the ehrc itself says one of the most important things that needs to be done is that this stuff has to be taken out of the hands of the leadership altogether Mm. and yes jeremy corbyn is somewhat at fault for not having done that uh so is every other leader of the labor party since this uh disciplinary process was first implemented Mm. um and you know jeremy corbyn doesn't deserve more blame or less blame than any of the others uh but keir starmer by intervening in the case of jeremy corbyn to suspend him from the labor party has completely blown out of the water any credibility he has to turn around and say that jeremy corbyn did anything particularly Just wrong imagine the conversation we could be having today after the ehrc report has been published about how the labor party needs to do better about how about trying to remove this debate from the toxic factionalism which is which has stopped any part of the Labour Party from being able to get their, get a handle on this properly. About being honest about the flaws in the way that Corbyn approached it. We could be having that conversation today. Keir Starmer has decided that dealing with that, taking this out of factionalism, actually starting to talk seriously about anti-Semitism, the Labour Party starting to actually, you know, seriously start to get on top of this and fulfil its duty to Jewish people, which is to sort this issue out, because it's really not, the Labour Party has not been good on this. I'm, I'm going to say that. We could be having that conversation, but Keir Starmer thinks it's more important to launch a factional attack on the left than to actually take this opportunity to start properly dealing with this issue. It's low. It's very, very low from the leadership. And fr- from a from a from a man who, in his former career, was a human rights lawyer, for goodness' sake, yeah, it is it is quite disgusting, frankly. Um, and I, I I am going to, as the trans representative on the podcast, make the point that. Over the past several weeks, there have been numerous cases in which members of the Labour Party, including a sitting MP, Rosie Duffield, the MP for Cambridge, um, have made extremely transphobic comments, both on social media and in interviews. And Keir Starmer has both sides of the issue, you know, to the back teeth. Mm. You know, Jess Phillips. Jess Phillips uh, it has been making these kinds of transphobic comments for years. She reads out a list of uh, women who uh, are the victims of domestic abuse in Parliament. Uh, right uh, every year and deliberately leaves off trans women um who are and who and particularly black trans women and other trans women of color are murdered at a much higher rate than anyone else on earth Mm. uh like it 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 is it is a massive massive double standard yeah a massive double standard and why because the anti-semitism stuff is good mileage from a factional perspective, whereas the trans yeah. issues aren't. Because if he comes mm-hmm. down on the side of trans women, he will be made out by the right yeah. and by 
factions within the British media influenced by trans-exclusive feminists, so-called feminists, mm. to be it, some kind not of... not to say that one of them is more important than the other. It's exactly the point that one of them isn't more important than the other, which is why they should both be taken seriously. They should both be taken equally seriously, and both tr- and 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 so should you know all forms of discrimination. Mm. And I agree that the ERC report says that um, se- response to sexual harassment complaints and to complaints for other forms of racism, for example, have much clearer guidance and were dealt with much more swiftly than um, in many cases than uh, anti-Semitism uh, complaints. Mm-hmm. And I absolutely will insist that that is corrected. Although I will point out that, as I said earlier, according to the previous internal Labour Party report, a lot of those delays were caused by right-wing Labour officials yeah, right. trying to make Corbyn look bad. But even so, they should never have been in a position in the first place where they were able to do that because the complaints procedure should have been entirely independent from the word right, go. Yes. And that needs to happen. That needs to happen for all forms of disciplinary complaints. Which is significantly more so because of the reforms that Jeremy Corbyn brought in. Needs to go further, but but it's there's strong argument for making that Jeremy Corbyn is the is the first Labour leader for a while to actually make Labour's internal disciplinary process better, more fit for purpose, more capable of getting rid of anti Not good enough, and they, it took them too long to make those reforms happen. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't be allowed to be in politics. That's not a free society. And, and, and if that is going to be the standard, then Keir Starmer should resign tomorrow. Yeah, right. Because oh, as yeah, I said, totally. he has completely failed to deal with uh, the epidemic of transphobia among, uh, and specifically I should say transmisogyny, among several uh, members, including an MP in the within the Labour Party. So if, if that's the standard, Keir Starmer should resign tomorrow. Mm. As, as an MP, let alone leader of the Labour Or Party. rather, um, the government's legal unit should, um, should yeah. suspend him from the party. Yeah, absolutely. But why won't they? Factional reasons. And saying that it's factional is true, and even if it's not true, it's a legitimate opinion, people shouldn't be kicked out of the party for saying so. That is a free society. And if Keir Starmer doesn't believe in a free society, then he shouldn't be Prime Minister. And it's up to him to prove that he does. Because he's, he's lost his right to the benefit of the doubt now. Yep. Yeah, that's the bottom line, I suppose, is that I've run out of benefit of the doubt when it comes to Keir Starmer. He's a person who is hostile to much of what I believe, and that's just a fact. Gotta start recognising it. And he ran, he ran on a platform of essentially policy continuity with Jeremy Corbyn. Yeah. And uh, po- policy continuity with Jeremy Corbyn and, and taking the party leadership out of factionalism, i.e. Yeah. not attacking the left. The fact that he has broken his promise on one of those so extravagantly means I cannot, and the left I don't think can, have any confidence he means the other. Hmm. Especially after, after um, immediately after he became party leader, he went on... The, on the TV news and said that he hated the process of selling himself to the membership. Right? And it's important, and it's important, I think, uh, I talked about this uh, last week, so I'm resurrecting this from the grave for all you listeners, <laughs> but it's important, I think, to understand the factional nature of Keir Starmer's own personal coalition. Keir Starmer is a member of the Tribune group of MPs on what is broadly considered the soft left. These are the group from which the, um, the socialist campaign group split in the early 1980s hmm. um, and became the hard left Starmer is on the soft left yeah broadly, historically that comes from when when the party started to shift right in the 80s the Tribune group used to be the, the, the broad left of the party and as the party moved right the split was broadly yeah. one reading of it is that the socialist campaign group was the group was the bit of the left that wanted to resist that shift and the, yeah. and the Tribune group was the bit that wanted to go along with it 
but still be the left side. Or at the very the least, right sort of party. accommodate itself. To yeah, it. right. Yeah, no, absolutely. And so, and so you have the the split emerges with Tony Benn leading the socialist campaign group, and then people like Michael Foot and then like Danielle Kinnock coming to lead the sort of tribune group, the soft left um, group of MPs. Right. Um, Starmer is part of that um, soft left formation, and it's incorrect. Some people occasionally do to la- label him a Blairite or anything of the sort. But he, he the character of his coalition of power within the parliamentary Labour Party is very different yeah. because he he got the nominations in the first round of that leadership from certainly from members of his own grouping from from the soft left but largely he got votes who were, which were lent to him by members of the more right-wing factions of the labor party um and certainly once it became clear that jess phillips and lisa nandy um weren't Didn't viable candidates shot, yeah. And it came down essentially to a race between um, Keir Starmer and Rebecca Long-Bailey. The right-wing factions of the Labour Party, uh, Progress, which is the sort of uh, Blairite one, and Labour First, which is the sort of old the neoliberal right. entryist group. Yeah, <laughs> sort of Tom Watson-y kind of one. Uh, these two groups came together and formed a, uh, an, uh, a sort of coalition which they called Labour to Win. And that group backed Starmer to the hilt. And it's important to realise that even though Starmer himself isn't traditionally from the right of the party, his support within the PLP, and I think to a large extent within the wider party, although he did win with a lot of left votes, I think a lot of those people now regret voting for him. Mm. And I think his continuing support within the Labour Party largely comes from the right. And that means he has to play to them. And he could, he could alternatively have chosen to extend an olive branch to Rebecca Long-Bailey and to the other members of the campaign group and to govern genuinely as a unity candidate. And if it came to a choice between the left and the right, he could, he could have decided to go with the left. Mm. Indeed, it would be arguable that that would be a more natural fit for someone of his political pedigree. He used to be a Trotskyite, for goodness sake, and he has consistently been a member of the left of the party, just the softer left rather than the harder left. It could very well be argued that it would have been a much more natural fit for him to govern as sort of the head of a coalition of the soft left and the hard left. He chose not to do that. Yeah, he's making the choice, he chose even though he instead, doesn't have to, to align himself with the right. Yes, now, and that is a choice. What he really thinks on the inside, maybe his instincts are more on the soft left, but he's certainly being, the way he's behaving as Labour Party leader is that he's, he's choosing to serve as, you know, to more closely ally himself with his allies on the right, rather than with any potential allies that he might have had on the left. And I think with this action of suspending Jeremy Corbyn, he has burnt a lot of the remaining bridges yeah, on totally. the left. That is, a, that is a big vibe that I'm getting from all the buzz that I'm hearing, is there are quite a lot of people like me who were previously mm-hmm. trying to sort of straddle the, I, I am very much on the left of the party, but I wanted to sort of give Keir Starmer a try to have the benefit of the doubt whenever he does something like and there are a lot of people who are not going to be doing that anymore. <laughs> no. Because he's proven he doesn't deserve it. No, he doesn't deserve it. And I, I want to talk with you more on this issue, I think, on a future occasion, because we have other things to get to. But I do want to quickly say that I think this is a reason why organisation that, on the left, which straddles the divide between the left of the Labour Party and left-wing organisations outside the Labour Party is so important. Yeah, absolutely. It's why I think momentum made... Uh, <clears throat> Uh, a bit of a mistake when they decided to become a, a sort of a sub 
section of the Labour Party, rather than what they could have been and what was the other option, which was to be a broader grouping of the left with members both mm. within and without the Labour Party. And I say, I want to come back to May, this. You know, get involved with Labour politics, may endorse people, may try campaign for things within the party, but aren't Absolutely. actually an affiliated organisation. Yeah. I say, I want, I want to come back to that on a future, future yeah. occasion, yeah, I think it's an important that. topic. But, but I think I think possibly we should move on, unless you have anything more you want to say on I'll, I'll say one more thing about this, okay. which is that there's a big question around, do people that are on the left stay in the party or not? It is my position that we should. Mm-hmm. I was not settled on this position when this first happened. I have thought about it a lot, and I've spoken, I've considered it, and I think, yes, we should stay in the party. Thing number one is that if we mass self-purge, that's exactly what the right of the party wants. If they want us out of the party, they'll have to force us out. And they're very welcome to try. And they need to fight that process every step of the way. That's thing number one. Thing number two is we've got the NEC elections coming up, and mm-hmm. this is just an important public service information, is that if you voted and then you quit, your vote is cancelled. Mm, right. So, at the very least, stay until until then, and then decide on on what you want to do in future. And thing number three is, if you really can't stomach staying in the party, then join something like a union, where you still have affiliate membership of the Labour Party, but your membership dues don't go directly. So you can still vote in leadership elections and things like that. But the one thing that we shouldn't do, demobilise. This is not the moment to... to, to split up into a million different splits rid of our ability to fight back. I think that's a broadly sensible point. Um, yeah, I definitely I definitely think that your point about if you can't stomach being a, a full member of the party, uh, affiliate membership via a union is definitely a good way to go. Mm. I mean, I would absolutely encourage joining a union if you can anyway, uh, regardless um, whether unions are available to mm. you in your sort of profession and your... It does your specifically have to be a union which is affiliated to the party. Of course. But yeah, that is yeah. most of them. <laughs> Yeah, most of the sort of big ones that aren't sort of international, hmm. uh, like the IW. I've been considered, but yeah, uh, yeah, I, I, I will, I will, I will say that um, that I'm not currently a member of the Labour Party. Fair enough. Um, that's for the reason actually that um, uh, I had some financial problems a little while ago. And my membership lapsed. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm certainly now thinking quite critically about whether I want to reapply. Yeah, so, I would say one more thing about being in the party which is that don't stay in the party if it's going to make you pull your punches when it comes to the leadership or self-censor or think, well, I can't say that because I'm a Labour Party member or whatever. Mm-hmm. You stay in the party and then tell the truth, fight for your politics, say what you mean, mean what you say, all that stuff. And yeah. if the leadership wants to take enough of an issue with that that, they can, that they're going to try and force you out of the party, then fight them on it. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I remember going when I was uh, in sixth form and studying politics at a level uh, that I went up to Methodist Central Hall for uh, in London, um, and we watched some presentations by various political figures, sort of a a, a, a real selection of groups. Uh, John Burko, who who was then the speaker, sort of kicked it off because it was sort of his sort of brainchild, um, mm. and then there's Simon Hughes from the Liberal Democrats. There, I think David Blunkett was there. Um, there were all sorts of people. Uh, but there was also Tony Benn, uh-huh. and this was a couple of months before he died. Um, I don't know if I was one of the last people to see him speak publicly. It's certainly possible. Maybe, yeah. And I remember when he came out to speak, everyone in the room went quiet. Mm. 
despite the fact that there'd been plenty of noise beforehand, everyone in the room, including people who are certainly not members, listened in sort of rapt attention as he spoke. And he said that he basically thought that socialism couldn't thrive in the United Kingdom without some present. Um, he thought that the Labour Party, whilst not perfect and whilst not a socialist organisation in and of itself, required um, socialist participation in it in order to be the force for good that mm. it can be. And I don't know if I 100% agree with him on everything yeah. <laughs> about that, but I definitely think that as long as there is any chance that socialists can exercise meaningful influence within the Labour Party, we should do our damnedest to do so. Yeah. And also, it's, there's a lot that we can do outside of the party. You can try and organise people, join a tenants' union, try to resist evictions, um, you know, environmental campaigns, try to get involved in local politics, whatever. There's loads of stuff that we can do. Absolutely. But, um, and it's... Okay, put it this way. You can think of the left by contrast with something like UKIP or the Brexit Party, where they have formed... the not inside the Tory party and have had some success in dragging the Tory party to the right on specific issues. But the left is different to that kind of thing because we have to be serious about state power. We want to reform the British state fundamentally. We want to reform the society in a completely different mould. Whereas you just don't get that from Nigel Farage. What's his political economy? What's his take on housing? What's his take on the, you know, climate change? It's, it's nothing. Whereas, and we can achieve a lot outside of the party with all the things that I've just mentioned as well. But we, if we're going to achieve the political project that we want, we have to be serious about taking state power as well. And until someone has a vehicle which is more likely to achieve that than the Labour Party, I think we have to engage with it. Yeah. No, I, I, I definitely think so. I mean, I'm a little more sympathetic, perhaps, to, to certain um, anarchist organising strategies of um, establishing sort of mutual aid groups, cooperatives, things like that, which I think definitely mm. can be done and should be done and don't need to interact with the Labour Party. But I've never been entirely persuaded by the sort of central anarchist claim that the state and capitalism can be overthrown simultaneously. I think it will probably be necessary, at least in some sense, to use part of the state in order to effect our overthrow of capitalism. And I'm, pers I'm open to being persuaded. Otherwise, I certainly have a lot of anarchist friends um, who have come close to persuading. I, I've never quite... I've never quite taken that leap myself. Well, the thing is, if we, regardless of whether we try to use the state, the state is, if we don't, the state's definitely going to try and stop us. Oh, of course, yeah. It's still no, there. Absolutely. Yeah. That's if you have yeah. a, um, a class war view of things, surely it's at the very least a front in the, in the war, right? <laughs> to extend the metaphor. We're probably going to spend the most of the remainder of this yeah. conversation talking about America. Uh, before we do, I would quickly like to mention um, a couple of sort of rather chilling authoritarian moves, I would say. Uh, one of which by the government and one of which by the BBC. So um, the government issued some guidance uh, was a couple of weeks ago now, I think, uh, against the use of left-wing materials in schools, rather broadly constituted. Um, so... Uh, let's see if I can bring up a uh, sort of direct quote, because that would be useful. Uh, yes, so here's the, here's the, here's the direct quote. Um, School should not, under any circumstances, produced by organisations that take extreme political stances on matters. This is the case even if the material itself is not extreme, as the use of it could imply endorsement or support of examples of what could be 
considered an extreme political stance included desire to abolish or overthrow democracy, capitalism, or to end free and fair elections. And also included a bunch of other things that you might more reasonably expect, such as you know, racist language, hmm. endorsement of illegal activity. I mean, that's a bit iffy because that could encompass forms of civil disobedience. But But specifically, I want to focus really on the idea that it is now against government guidance for schools to use, not even to endorse, but to use material by any group that wants to abolish or overthrow capitalism. Even if the material doesn't talk about that. It's just yeah. from an organisation which also has that stance. It's going to make teaching the Russian Revolution quite tricky. I think. Quite difficult, yes. Yeah. Or um, indeed British history, British political history. Yeah, as John MacDonald pointed out, on this basis it will be illegal to refer to large tracts of British history and politics, mm-hmm. including the history of British socialism, the Labour Party and trade unionism. Yes. Keir Hardy, first Labour Party MP, Marxist. Quite. Not allowed to... What about George Orwell? <laughs> yeah, I can't, can't read 1984 now. Yep. William Morris, all that lovely wallpaper. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not allowed. Not allowed. I just there's more to William Morris than wallpaper. <laughs> it wasn't yes. wallpaper, but it was as wallpaper goes. Yeah, I, I only I will only wallpaper my home with uh, wallpaper made by committed socialists. Mm. <laughs> um, William Morris is the only wallpaper artist for me. Yeah, Oscar uh, Wilde okay. actually, come to think of it. Yeah, that's not yeah. You can't teach that. Well, they probably and Inspector Calls. Anyway. The point. I, this seems to speak to a. Um, a kind of an ignorance about what socialism is as a movement, how broad it is, how 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 much of an intrinsically fully endemic and integrated part of all, you know, all, all human societies it has been. You can't ban people from talking about socialism without banning people from talking about a, a very, very large portion of all of history, culture, economics, you know, social analysis, anything, right? Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. it's that clearly someone in the people, in the in whoever drafted this policy, thinks of anti-capitalism as meaning some tiny irrelevant fringe group which they can't, which, which they can basically, and, and doesn't think of it as the enormous and incredibly influential movement that it is. And insofar as they do think of it that way, they are probably hoping that this guide, these guidelines will catch. Well, yeah, indeed. Because I, th- I think there are certainly some people in the government who understand what Marxism is, to take yeah. an example, uh, who understand that like the Marxist reading of history, the Marxian view of economics, mm. Marxist, I mean, Marx, for goodness sake, he practically invented or, or, or co-invented sociology, yeah. modern sociology, you know. It is quite difficult sometimes to work out how much are they strollmanning their opponents and how much do they just simply not know what they're talking about. Yeah. Hard to say. It is. But yeah, that's, yeah. Something that struck me as ironic in this story is that is that they said that part of the point of this is to defend free speech. Of course, yeah, you're also not allowed to use material from anti-free speech groups. Enforcing ideological conformity to a particular view of how society must be organised, and deviation yeah. from that isn't allowed anymore, that for free speech. <laughs> yeah, I mean, ac- according to these guidelines, the fact of these guidelines' existence means it's now illegal, or now against, uh, you know, against uh, guidance to for schools to use any material provided by the British government uh, under right, yeah. Boris Johnson. Um, which, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm okay with that part, uh, honestly. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> no, it's, it's ludicrous. It's absolutely ludicrous. Uh, the other thing I wanted to sort of bring into this was the uh, recent, I think it's been described as a brouhaha, <laughs> which I always love. I always love when I see that. 
in a in a, about it, British journalism that has all these words yeah. which they don't use anywhere else. A fracas. Yeah, fracas. Yeah. Allegations yeah. is a big one as well. Yeah. I, mean, I know definitely. that is a general more general word, but British press love using it. They do. They absolutely do. Yeah. Um I suppose yet, if you're a journalist rather than an author, you have to crank out a lot more material each week. So it's easy if you can just use stock phrases, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't no, supposed that, to be a joke. I mean, I was, that was me trying to be. That's a bit. Uh, that is a bit cynical, but I think difficult I think job that they right. have to do. Yeah. No, yeah, I think you're right. Um, so there, there was a story a couple of days ago, um, saying that essentially the BBC had released some guidelines of their own, which mm. forbade their um, uh, employees from attending. Uh, pride parades or Black Lives Matter. And basically the idea behind this was that they were the BBC has a responsibility to be impartial and it, it could be said therefore that attending a a march in support of LGBT rights or black rights civil rights could be considered taking a position on a controversial issue. Yeah. And now it has since since this the uh the head of the BBC um, has walked this back a bit. So, um, the Director General Tim Davey has said journalists could attend if they are not taking a stand on politicised or contested issues. And then there are some some further comments, but essentially it does create this interesting set of ambiguities. Um, I, sh- I should I should point out that, that, that Tim Davey doesn't address the question of whether BBC journalists can attend Black Lives Matter marches. That isn't addressed at all. So as far as we know, that's still not allowed. As for pride, um, it's they're allowed to go, but they must quote be mindful of ensuring that they do not get involved in matters which could be deemed political or controversial. Now, I don't want to be solipsistic here, but um, I, as a trans woman, (laughs) I can read between the lines a little bit there, Um, because what that sounds like to me is yes, you can go to pride, but you can't say. I support trans rights because trans rights is, according to the BBC, a politicised or contested issue, mm. um, which is where they have to be impartial on it and invite a bunch of transphobes onto all of their programmes um, because it's, you know, controversial whether trans people deserve rights. Um, and of course, this is complete nonsense because it's also controversial in a lot of quarters about whether other LGBT people deserve rights yeah, right. and about whether black people or people of, other people of colour deserve rights. But the BBC, you know in its sort of liberal bubble sort of thinks that those are a bit more settled um for now hmm. i don't you know these people will use trans rights as a wedge issue and in five years time if they carry on the way they're going you know well, these things uh, can change very quickly you know you know gay rights are going to be are going to be uh, you know back in their sort of contested position they were in the 90s you know that's what they want yeah. but at the moment you know it's, it's it's mostly in this country at least trans rights that are in the firing line and that's what this reads like to me hmm. is that like bbc staff can go to Pride as long as they don't start talking about the transes too much. And I think, again... It's, I think it's, it's hard to say how much that's part of it, but it's, I mean, it seems pretty clear to me that that's at the very least part of what they mean, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Even if they don't intend to mean it that way, that's how it'll be used. Yeah, of course, of course. It, 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 to a large extent, your intentions are less important than the consequences of your actions. And I guarantee that'll be part of the consequences. Yeah. So, I think I might have a slightly unusual take on this, in that... Mm-hmm. It's kind of just accurate to say that these things are politically contentious. Because they are politically contentious. No, they shouldn't be, but they are. What this says is not that the BBC should 
my position is kind of that the BBC shouldn't not be real about whether these things are politically contentious or not. Pretend that they're apolitical when they are political. It's that. So I think there are limits to how impartial a public service broadcaster kind of should be. I so agree. If you work for the BBC, it it is politically contentious to say that post-imperial and post-slave-owning societies, racism is endemic to them and is uh, and is thoroughly conditions the way their institutions function. That's politically contentious, but it's also the sort of thing that you should be able to say even if you have a job at the BBC, I think. Absolutely. Right? It's something you should say. You have yeah. a responsibility to say. You have a duty to say, frankly. Right. So I think because there are people in this country that don't realise that and neutral, they need to know. Politically neutral broadcasting is... There's, there's some truth to it and some value to the idea of it, but it is kind of actually not a thing. I, don't, I think it's a kind of an impossible ideal to aim for. Everyone's human. Everyone has positions. Even if they're, they're having to, you know, they've got, they've got 20 minutes to give you the world. They're going to have to edit down the sheer amount of information of everything that has happened worldwide today. Mm-hmm. And they will have to make decisions as to what they think, what stories are important, what to emphasise about them. You know, it's, it is not only impossible, it, it's sort of, it would be meaningless to even imagine a politically neutral version of that. Now, that doesn't mean that the BBC should take the side of a particular political party in an election. Okay, they should be impartial in that sense. But that doesn't mean that they should that they should pretend that their reporters aren't people and don't have politics of their own. Yeah. No, absolutely. All all speech is political. Yeah, right. All human action virtually has some political component. Hmm. Politics is just in its sort of you know most basic form, it's questions of power and decision making and allocation of resources and who gets to decide mm. what we do and how we go. And so politics isn't everything, but everything is political. Politics absolutely. is relevant to everything. Yeah. 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 You know, it might not be the most important aspect of a given thing. You know, if you and I decide to go to the pub, um, you know, work out which just... pub's the most left wing before going. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But that, but that, but that's a political question. If you know, if you want to go to the shooting star and I want to go to the Hobbit, you know, we don't have to have a back and forth about that. One of us is going to get away, and one of us is not. We can't go right. to both. Oh, we can't go to both. But we can't. We, <laughs> we still have that. to decide which to go first. Yeah. Um, you know, every every interaction has a political component. And I am ripping this example uh, off from a, another podcaster, um, mm-hmm. Toby Buckle of the Political Philosophy Podcast. Uh, so. My my apologies to him if he's listening. Um, but you him, it's fine. Yeah, exactly. But but it's a good example, right? You know, everything, no matter how sort of seemingly mundane, has a political component. And to pretend it doesn't is to do your audience a misjustice. And if right. you're someone at the BBC whose audience is, at least in theory, everyone in the UK plus a sizable percentage of English-speaking people overseas, hmm. um, that's a problem. <laughs> it's difficult, because it, there is obviously... A difference between the kind of the, the fact that politics is relevant to everything and therefore it's also relevant to the way the BBC reports on things. But also, there's a very clear difference between them and something like The Telegraph, which mm. is partisan and political in a very different way. Yes. But that's the thing, isn't it? It's it's the BBC... The BBC? The, I've, I've turned it to Sean Connery. <clears throat> R.I.P. Sean Connery. I've been possessed by his ghost. That's what it is. <laughs> um, but the BBC should absolutely be non-partisan uh, in the sort of narrow sense of they shouldn't um, sort of commit themselves to backing one political party over another. 
I think that's a good argument to be made that, you know, the level of partisanship in the sort of mass circulation newspapers is frankly at a level and at a level of sort of circulation where it would be good to have some regulation of how partisan they can be, particularly election times mm. also. But partisanship and, politi- and, and politics, politics are not the same thing. And you can be non-partisan while still being political. Yeah. There are, there are ways that you can deal with it as well. So probably the most simple one is that the people who, um, you know, political editor at the BBC and the people that are the news anchors and the people that make the decisions as to what they're going to report and how are people, they have political opinions, they should be honest about what they are rather than pretending that they don't have them. Mm-hmm. They can also then try to be even-handed even though yeah. they, to people that they disagree with. And, but the point is that they should be honest about what their perspective is and then try to be impartial and then we can judge how well they did. Yeah, I mean, we should all aim for even-handedness and and, yeah, right. and and being, you know, fair to our opponents. You know, I, I, I'm a pretty committed socialist, but I don't intend to tell any lies about the yeah, conservatives. Yeah, and if I find myself to have said something that isn't true, then and someone points that out to me, then I'll correct myself mm. in future. I don't want to be lying about anything. Uh, I'm just interpreting, you know, the information that I receive according to what I believe is correct. And also uh, give them credit when they do do stuff that's right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, um, you know, I thought, as I said earlier, I thought the Northern Research Group uh, lot mm, were, right. were, were got Richie Sunak back to rights. And, you know, it, I'm sure Boris Johnson's done something, right? I, I can't <laughs> yeah. quite call to any examples to mind off the top of my head, but that's, I'm sure that just has more to do with me being a little, a little, um, yeah. a little tired from... So he hasn't been Prime Minister, although he's had a long <sighs> career like in politics forever, before that. that. Seems like forever. Yeah, already. yeah, I know. Less than a year. No, oh no, maybe almost exactly a year now. Yeah, I feel like Boris Johnson. I think it was last year for most David, of last year. And then David so Cameron. Weird. Do you remember David Cameron? I remember David. I Cameron. sometimes feel like David Cameron was someone I only ever knew from history books. Yeah, and then at the same time, I also sometimes feel like he's still prime minister. Yeah, and I'm sort of slightly surprised that he's not. It's very weird. I feel like he was only prime minister. Yeah, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, but also, it seems like he hasn't been Prime Minister for a hundred years. <laughs> I think partly the pandemic is screwing it's, it's the sense of time. It must be. Yeah, and I think it's just that. But I think it's partly. Hey, uh, this is Catherine speaking. Uh, while I'm editing this episode, uh, it ended up being a very long one, so I decided to split it into two parts. Uh, so this will be the conclusion of part one, and then part two will be following, hopefully tomorrow, when I have a chance to... Uh, edit that it ended up being about four hours of audio and i'm very tired but i shall get it to you as soon as i can so for now everyone uh thank you for listening to revolutionary dispatches be absolutely excellent to one another and viva la revolution see you soon